ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Rachel Mealy, coming to you from the lands of the Turbal and Yuggera people in Brisbane. Tonight, gas giant Santos secures a big legal win after Tiwi Island elders tried to block a multi-billion dollar project. Also, it's perfectly safe and relatively cheap. So is it time for us to start drinking recycled wastewater? And Taiwan has elected a new president. Can he master a delicate balancing act with China? Both China and Taiwan don't love the status quo. It's not desirable. But what the status quo does is it keeps the peace. And by allowing the status quo to exist, it lets Taiwan be a free and fair democracy. One of the biggest gas companies operating in Australia has scored a major legal victory after the federal court dismissed a case brought by Tiwi Island elders. Santos is aiming to build a $5.7 billion gas project in the Timor Sea north of Darwin and today's result allows it to do just that. Reporter Samantha Dick has been following the case from Darwin. Samantha, remind us what this case was all about. Well, there's been a lot of lengthy legal arguments in the federal court about this over the past few months, but the heart of this dispute really centres around whether Santos's underwater gas pipeline for its Barossa gas project in the Timor Sea would potentially damage sacred sites in waters west of the Tiwi Islands. So last year, legal action initiated by a group of Tiwi Islands elders represented by the Environmental Defenders Office uh, forced Santos to pause works on its Barossa gas pipeline on the grounds that it may damage underwater sites and disturb culturally significant spiritual beings. They said that Santos's own cultural heritage survey wasn't good enough and they argued that Santos should go away and prepare a new environment management plan that considers these risks. Today, that bid officially failed uh, with the federal court ruling in Santos's favour. Justice Natalie Charlesworth said there was disagreement among relevant Tiwi Islanders about these song lines and whether the pipeline would impact them. She also said she was unconvinced that the song lines lay directly in the path of the proposed pipeline and dismissed the elders' application. And what's been the reaction from those Tiwi Islands elders who launched the case to today's decision? Oh, well, they've just released a statement. The lead plaintiff, Simon Mankara, has described this. Uh, this outcome is very disappointing. He said in a statement, we brought this case to protect our sea country. I am a true believer for my country. We are hurting and need some time to think. I don't expect we'll hear any more from the Tiwi Islands elders or the Environmental Defenders Office today, but perhaps later this week, once they've regrouped, we might hear a little bit more from them about their reaction. What does this decision mean for Santos and the energy sector more broadly? Well, this is a great day for Santos because it means the company can resume laying the pipeline for its $5.7 billion Barossa gas project. Uh, this is the company's biggest investment in more than a decade and it's a really big deal for them. Uh, their pipeline is essential for piping gas drilled in the Timor Sea back to Darwin to then be shipped off to buyers in Japan and South Korea. And today's result means the project can start progressing again after lengthy delays that have cost them millions of dollars every week as a result of this court action. 
Uh, more broadly, though, Australia's oil and gas lobby group has welcomed the decision, saying it ends a period of significant uncertainty, substantial delays and costs incurred for the project. They went a step further and called for urgent reform of the offshore approval system to make sure other gas companies don't suffer the same legal battles as Santos going forward. Samantha Dick reporting from Darwin. Three Israeli hostages who were among those taken on October the 7th have appeared in a video urging the Israeli government to bring them home. The video was released by Hamas, but it's not clear when it was filmed. It coincides with the 100-day anniversary of the war in Gaza, which has killed nearly 24,000 Palestinians, according to Gaza's Hamas-run health ministry. Isabel Musali reports. In central Gaza, Ahmed Olastez digs through the rubble of his building. He survived this latest attack, but explains two people were killed nearby. A missile landed at our neighbours but didn't detonate. The missile came like this, almost vertically, and there it is on the other street. We go out, we see our neighbour has two martyrs. We picked up things with him and helped him a bit. Then another hit. We didn't have time to get to the other street before a third missile hit. And as you see, this is the situation. Destruction after destruction. You're sitting happily and safely at your home with everything secured with your children and the children of other displaced people. And then within seconds, you lose everything. As the conflict marks 100 days, Gaza's Hamas-run health ministry says close to 24,000 people have been killed in the Palestinian territory. In Tel Aviv, in Israel, thousands gather in a plaza, calling for the immediate return of an estimated 130 people taken by Hamas on October 7, attacks which also saw 1,200 Israelis killed. They chant in Hebrew, bring them home now. Among those in the crowd is 11-year-old Ziv. He holds up a photo of his brother Rom. This is my big brother. He's kidnapped by Hamas. Uh, is held hostage, hostage uh, from the 7 October, 100 days. Uh, we hope we come back. We wish he came back every day, every night, every time, every hour, every minute that passed is harder. Hamas has also put attention on the hostages today by releasing a video which it says shows three hostages alive in Gaza. A woman and two men speak directly to the camera urging the Israeli government to bring them home. Dr Roger Shanahan is an independent Middle East analyst. He says Hamas makes the videos to humanise the hostages and has released similar videos before. Those were in the earlier days of the conflict and that was really uh, Hamas's way of trying to get uh, Israel to reduce its um, uh, the intensity of its uh, bombing at that stage. Um, we're now you know, 100 days uh, past the attack on uh, 7th of October, and so Hamas's reasons for releasing these kind of things um, uh, may have changed. It may also be a way of Hamas uh, telling, uh, giving a proof of life to the Israeli public to let them know that uh, there are other hostages um, that the Israeli government needs to take into account as part of its military operations. He says one of the biggest challenges is what will happen in the aftermath, but for now there's no indication of when the conflict will end. Israel is still continuing uh, its campaign in uh, Gaza, uh, focused more on uh, southern Gaza, where it believes, or it's saying that it believes the majority of the Hamas leadership 
remains. Uh, the intensity of the Israeli operation seems to have reduced uh, somewhat, and that's to be expected given the uh, large numbers of the reservists that have been mobilised to uh, take part in it. Uh, several thousand of those have been demobilised and returned um, to Israel and their um, occupations. But Prime Minister Netanyahu has said uh, repeatedly and even uh, as recently as last couple of days that there's no end in sight. Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong is travelling to the Middle East and is expected to meet with Palestinians and Israelis affected by the war. She was asked this morning if she'll take the opportunity to call for a ceasefire in person. Our position is that we want to see a sustainable ceasefire and that we see an international immediate humanitarian ceasefire as a step towards that. No ceasefire can be one-sided and no ceasefire can be unconditional. Uh, And so our position uh, will be to advocate that. I will, however, say I think there is increasing concern about Uh, the protection of civilian lives, and we will continue to express uh, those views uh, to all parties. Foreign Minister Penny Wong ending that report by Isabel Masali. China has urged the US, the UK and Japan to stay out of its internal affairs after those nations congratulated the newly elected president of Taiwan. Lai Qingte, who's more commonly known as William Lai, emerged the victor in a hotly contested presidential election at the weekend. It's expected William Lai will lead in the style of the current president, Tsai Ing-wen, and maintain the status quo in relation to Taiwan's relationship with China. The People's Republic of China, or the PRC, continues to claim sovereignty over Taiwan. Lev Nachman is Associate Professor in Political Science at National Changchi University in Taipei. We spoke earlier. Well, we saw for a historic first time the Democratic Progressive Party, the DPP, won their third presidential election in a row. That's the first time there hasn't been party turnover in Taiwan. Typically, we've had eight years of one party, eight years of another party, then eight years back to the original uh, and this is the first time that one of those parties has managed to will, will have power for, for 12 years this time. But really, the biggest uh, result of this election is that there are three presidential candidates who all got a meaningful percentage of the vote. Uh, even though there's a very clear first, second and third, this was the first presidential candidate where we had three meaningfully uh, viable competitors in this election. So uh, Lai Qingda of the Democratic Progressive Party is the victor. Uh, he won about with 40 percent of the vote. Second was Hou Yoi of the KMT, the Chinese Nationalist Party, who won with 33% of the vote. Uh, and finally was Ko Wenjie of the Taiwan People's Party, the, the third party candidate who sort of shook up this election, uh, who managed to get 26% of the vote. Uh, and even though Ko lost, 26% was, was far more than most of us anticipated he would get. Uh, it, it really is a sign that there is meaningful demand for a presidential candidate who is not from the KMT or the DPP. What do we know about Lai, soon-to-be President Lai, and what he stands for? Uh, So William Lai spent the last year plus trying to convince both the domestic Taiwanese audience and the international audience that he is going to be Tsai Ing-wen 2.0. We know that he is emphatically pro-status quo. He does not pursue independence. uh, And that we should expect four more years of what we've come to know from the DPP governance, which is a moderate, pragmatic, but pro-Taiwan approach to Taiwan's affairs. Now, unfortunately... That also means that the PRC will not have any communication with Taiwan during these four years. From China's perspective, it doesn't matter if you're the most pragmatic DPP politician in the world. Uh, you are still from the DPP, which means that beginning any sort of communication is a non-starter. 
So even though William Lai will likely continue a lot of Tsai's policies, we're not likely to see a change in the very icy relationship between Taiwan and China. You've described the relationship as icy, but it's status quo from now on. Yeah, correct. And I, and I would describe the status quo as somewhat icy. I mean, both China and Taiwan don't love the status quo. It's not desirable. People in Taiwan don't wake up, you know, loving the status quo. But what the status quo does is it keeps the peace. Uh, it allows Taiwan to continue to exist as a de facto uh, independent state, not a de jure independent state, uh, which means that it, it has all the features of a state, but, but it doesn't technically have a uh, full-fledged statehood status. Uh, and by allowing the status quo to exist, it lets Taiwan be a free and fair democracy. And it also allows the PRC to claim that that no one is formally recognizing Taiwan or its status. So, of course, the PRC would like Taiwan to be part of China, and Taiwan, you know, someday would like to not have to have this big contested issue shadowing every aspect of its politics. But for now, the status quo allows peace in the Taiwan Strait, even if it's an uncomfortable peace. So China won't be picking up the phone to congratulate him, and there won't be any communication the other way either. Uh, correct, which is frustrating because it's not for a lack of trying. Tsai Ing-wen over the last eight years has, has tried to call the PRC. It's, it's the PRC that doesn't answer the phone. How has China responded to this news so far and what do you expect to see? Uh, it's been largely muted. Uh, you know, we've seen what we expected, some some vaguely threatening statements from the Taiwan Affairs Office, which is the office from uh, the PRC. Uh, and we've seen some, you know, some of the similar rhetoric from other PRC officials, you know, the fake notes of, you know, Taiwan is part of China, this will not, you know, the, the DDP's win will not stop our eventual goal of unification. But that's that's box standard response from the PRC. It, it, it doesn't really get much media attention here because people in Taiwan are incredibly used to it. Um, but, but that doesn't mean we're done seeing the PRC's response. William Lai is not technically president until May. So realistically, if the PRC was going to have a big reaction, they, they may be waiting till May to hear what William Lai says in his inauguration speech. The United States has already congratulated President Lai. What will that mean for China's perception? And does that present any more challenges for him to keep the peace with the West? Uh, so, you know, the United States and Taiwan have reached sort of a new level of robust relationship over the last eight years. And obviously the PRC doesn't like it. But for what it's worth, the PRC doesn't like any relationship with Taiwan that the United States has. Uh, and the United States made it very clear this election cycle that it does not have a preferred winner. It does not, from the peer, uh, from the United States perspective, excuse me, it doesn't matter if it was Hoyoe, Coenza, or William Lai who won, so long as it was decided by a free and fair election, the United States was going to approve of this election. Uh, and the fact that it's William Lai, at the very least from the United States, allows them to continue with continuity from working with the DPP for the last eight years. From the United States' perspective, though, you know, we've seen President Biden and uh, Xi Jinping meet and try to find a floor to stand on to try to amend some of the negative relations right now between the U.S. and China. And the hope is that Taiwan will not cause any more trouble and that uh, Taiwan can actually perhaps uh, be a way for dialogue to continue, between, to continue between the two sides. Apart from China, there are challenges closer to home for the new president to deal with, aren't there? Yeah, so William Lai won the presidency, but they did not maintain their majority in, in Taiwan's legislative UN, sort of the parliamentary uh, body that, that, that governs domestic politics. Um, and that's going to be a very big challenge because the DPP is going to have to work with the other parties to try to be able to pass meaningful policy. But the other parties, at least right now, don't seem particularly inclined to want to work with the DPP. Uh, you know, I think the Taiwan People's Party, the third party that, that, that won uh, eight seats this election cycle, are going to play a very pivotal role in sort of being able to decide which policies are passed and which are not. 
Uh, and from the DPP's perspective, it's going to be very much about trying to find an offer uh, for the TPP that they will accept so that they're able to uh, actually be able to get something done for the next four years. Professor Nachman, thanks very much for joining us on PM. Thank you for having me. Associate Professor Lev Nachman is from National Chungchi University. This is PM with me, Rachel Mealy, and you can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. The alarm's been sounded on real estate agents going rogue and raising rents without the knowledge of the landlord. Those affected say the amount by which the agents raise the rental price seems to be random and at the discretion of individual agencies. It coincides with a new report showing rental price increases are now beating property price rises due to the volume of Australians needing private shelter. So what, if anything, can be done about it? David Taylor has the story. 76-year-old landlord Suzanne Chandler owns two investment properties in Tasmania. She says she tries her best to limit increases to the rent her tenants pay. So she was surprised when one of them expressed concern over a recent rent hike. When the agent put the rent up for my tenant without me knowing, but I didn't at the time, I wasn't the owner, but I when I became the owner, I found that out and put the rent back down again. Suzanne is now dealing directly with the tenant after sacking the real estate agency. My tenant now has $30 or $40 less and I also come out better too because um, when you do the sums and, um, and he and I are on good terms and we can talk to each other and I can fix anything up as soon as he wants it without having to go through the agent. In Tasmania, an owner can only increase the rent after giving the tenant written notice at least 60 days before the new amount takes effect. But every state and territory has different laws around renting. Broadly speaking, a rent increase is permitted under a tenancy agreement. PM asked the peak industry body, the Real Estate Institute of Australia, to respond to reports rogue real estate agents are raising rents without the consent of landlords. President Leanne Pilkington told PM, while each state has its own laws and legal requirements, it is industry standard and absolutely crucial that landlords are aware and up to date on the management of their investment, including changes to the rent. It coincides with a new report from property data firm CoreLogic showing rental price growth has outpaced property price growth for the second consecutive year. Rental price growth has only outpaced dwelling value growth over a calendar year three times since records began in 2013. Eliza Owen is CoreLogic's Head of Research. In the past three years, rent values have seen really strong growth quite consistently. So 9.6% in 2021, 9.5% in 22, and another 8.3% in 2023. So that's a consistent growth rate where growth in home values and what you would pay for property has been more up and down over the past few years. And what's that telling you? It tells me that there's a difference in the supply and demand of property for purchase and I guess, the kind of fundamental need for housing over time. Um, it goes to show that home values can be influenced by lots of different things like interest rates, consumer sentiment, uh, and how easy credit is to access. 
Whereas the rental market is basically showing that more fundamental need for housing, which is why costs are going up again and again and again, even if people aren't in the market to actually purchase property, they need somewhere to live. There's general agreement that hundreds of thousands more homes need to be built in coming years to ease the pressure on the rental market. Housing Minister Julie Collins concedes the government's plan to build 1.2 million homes over the next five years is ambitious, but it remains achievable. No government alone is going to solve this. We need everybody working together and we need to be working with the construction sector as well. Eliza Owen says she expects growth of rental prices to ease, but only gradually. For those who have already had a big jump in rents, my guess is that you won't get another big shock when you go to renew your lease, um, but rents aren't coming down anytime soon. Some, though, it seems, prefer to take a more dramatic approach to negotiate their rent down to a more sustainable level. Landlord Suzanne Chandler told PM her son's friend marched into a real estate agency with the owner of his property on speakerphone, demanding an answer as to why his rent had increased. The, um, the friend went down to the agency with his phone on speaker and challenged the agent who denied that you know that it was illegal but because the owner was on the phone they actually um revealed the plot landlord suzanne chandler ending david taylor's report australian cycling advocates are calling for better data on crashes as new research finds riders over the age of 60 made up nearly half of all cycling fatalities in 2022. Experts say the numbers speak to a bigger issue of better safety and participation for all. Eliza Getze reports. The study, led by the University of New South Wales, examined the 1,294 cyclist fatalities recorded in Australia over 30 years. It found what appeared to be a stark contrast between deaths involving younger and older cyclists. Associate Professor Sufian Bufus led the research. There was an overall decrease in cyclist deaths of 1% a year, but this picture is not consistent according to age. So for younger people, there was actually a decrease of about 2.5% annually. But for people who are aged more than 60, there was an increase of 3% annually over that, that period of time. The proportion of riders over 60 who were killed grew from 8% of all cycling deaths in 1991 to 45% in 2022. The numbers also showed a shift in how cyclists were killed. We were surprised by the but the high proportion, the trend in, in an increase in proportion of cyclists that are buying as a result of, of, uh, of themselves, you know, without the involvement of cars. Because um, that proportion in the 90s was like one in 10. Um, and now it's about third. So a third of cyclists who die now, they die without involvement of cars. Cycling advocates say the figures paint just part of the picture of a need for better safety for cyclists. Stephen Hodge is the Director of National Advocacy for We Ride Australia. There is a, a major effort underway nationally as part of the National Road Safety Strategy Action Plan to align data better across, you know, for cause and effect. We don't have enough details about why cyclists um, are crashing, what the situation was at the time and all of this sort of thing. We also know that there are some very clear ways to improve road safety for vulnerable road users. The increase in fatalities in the older age groups is, is, a, is a worry. Obviously, they, 
there's a, a greater uh, tendency to be badly injured um, for a similar force. You know, if you crash on a bike as an older person than as a younger person, that may also be part of the reason, um, but we, we just don't know. Ben Beck is the head of sustainable mobility and safety research at Monash University. He says it's also important to acknowledge the 15,000 cyclists hospitalised for non-fatal injuries each year. These single bike crashes often don't get reported to police and so they aren't often captured in road safety databases. But we've done some research to fill that gap and and what we found was a diversity of, of causes. Things like uh, people interacting with, with tram tracks, which is a, a problem particular to, to Melbourne, but also things like striking potholes or mechanical issues with, with the bike. But, and I think people who ride will know that feeling of, of a bike lane full of rubble or having to dodge potholes. And so poorly maintained bike paths and lanes can actually have a big impact on safety. So it's not just about building the infrastructure, but also making sure it is well maintained. Ben Beck from Monash University, ending that report by Eliza Getzey. As Sydney searches for ways to supply drinking water to its growing population, one of the frustrating realities for authorities is that the city is sending vast amounts of wastewater out to sea, never to be seen again. But advanced cities around the world are recycling that wastewater and putting it back into the drinking water supply. Perth's been doing it for a while and now Sydney's Water Authority is trying to convince the public to support the move. For more, I spoke with reporter Xanthi Gregory. Xanthi, why is Sydney Water proposing this change? Well, in a study in 2022, Sydney Water and the New South Wales government identified that the city really has a water security issue. So basically we rely on getting the vast majority of our water for drinking supplies, so about 80% of our water, from Warragamba Dam. And now that was a dam that was built in the 1960s and you can imagine how much the population has grown uh, and also we're experiencing far more climate extremes, so therefore rainfall is falling in different places and it's becoming less reliable. So Sydney Water, along with the New South Wales government, decided in that plan that basically we need to come up with more alternative sources of water that don't necessarily rely on rain falling from the sky. So that's things like desalination, so extracting water from the sea, uh, treating it and removing the salts and to a point where it is safe to drink, although that's an extremely energy-intensive and expensive exercise to build desalination plants, but the cheapest, most cost-efficient, energy-efficient way that has been identified that's been used across 35 cities across the globe is a purified recycled water. So that's basically getting what we use uh, from our kitchens, from our bathrooms, from our showers, dishwashers, and not treating it and then flushing it out to sea, Uh, but taking it back from those wastewater treatment plants and putting it through a whole nother process so that it is treated to the point where it is safe to drink. What do we know about what Sydney ciders think about recycled drinking water? 
Well, this is this is a conversation that has, has popped up uh, decades ago and we're now starting to really kind of see it pop up again right across Australia. But I guess, I guess the best way to gauge how Sydney ciders have felt in the past about drinking their own treated wastewater is in 2007 when the um, leader of the opposition, of the state opposition, uh, the Liberal Party, Peter Debnam, during that election campaign, he... Uh, brought up the idea of potentially spending almost a billion dollars on purified recycled water and ultimately he didn't end up winning that election and many people believe that Sydney Sider's reaction, um, a potential scare campaign has been labelled, he didn't end up winning that election. Um, But Sydney Water now is opening a demonstration plant in Western Sydney understanding that there have been issues with these conversations in the past and um, really trying to just bring the community on side, one, through education before they really lock in this idea and go down the path and, and pretty much start putting this into our water supplies. It's been a bit of a perennial issue around Australia. Are there any towns and cities that are already using purified recycled water for drinking? Well, yeah, Perth is is the biggest one. They've been injecting, in a sense, purified recycled water into their aquifers since about 2017. Uh, we also know that in southeast Queensland, purified recycled water uh, is part of their bigger water supply, but it's not used for their drinking water supplies at this stage, only really for industries. But it is something that's used across 35 cities across the world. Uh, most like, importantly... Uh, Uh, And a lot of leaders, uh, water authorities are following the footsteps of what's happened in California, where they've really been using this technology for about 60 years. And just uh, over the Christmas period in parts of California, they've started injecting, in a sense, uh, this purified recycled water straight into people's taps, essentially. So as opposed to just filling up dams and then ultimately going into people's water supplies, it's going straight into their systems. Xanthi Gregory reporting there. And thanks for joining me for PM. I'm Rachel Mealy. You'll find all our interviews and reports on the PM webpage and you can catch the program live or later on the ABC Listen app. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night. Good night.